0: By Didier Drogba.
1: Yeah, it's the greatest night in Chelsea's history. Champions of Europe at last.
0: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the SW6 Daily Podcast today's episode i keep telling you guys we're only going to get bigger and bigger from this point onwards last episode was an absolute banger the one before that was a banger as well but today we're here with an even bigger banger because today on the show even though he's not a chelsea fan per se we do have a european soccer executive and investor and yes i'm fully aware i did say soccer because this our guest is from america he's actually in california this morning and I would like to welcome onto the SW60 in the podcast, one of the chairmen and co-owners of FC Helsingor and the co-owner of Dundalk FC and the minority investor at Swansea, Jordan Gardner. Jordan, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
0: Perfect. Perfect. So just to get straight into it, man, can you just tell us a bit more about yourself for the listeners who don't really know who you are?
1: Yeah, no. Um, I am a, as you described, a, a soccer executive investor here, based in San Francisco, in California. Um, I have a background in sports and technology. And a couple years back, um, I sold my company and decided to to really get into football um, full time. And so I had a couple projects I involved, uh, I worked on in uh, soccer here in the United States. And then over the last two to three years, I've spent my time in Europe and made a couple strategic minority investments in football clubs. As you mentioned, Swansea City in the UK, um, Ireland, uh, Dundalk Football Club in Ireland, and our most recent project is FC Helsinger, which is a club in Denmark. And you know, we've, um, you know, I think the the idea behind the different uh, models—it's obviously a little bit of a unique um, strategy—is to kind of be very smart and strategic about getting involved in European football and understanding the, the different philosophies of football in different countries and what makes sense for us and what doesn't. And try to avoid the mistakes i would say from our experience of you know american investors that come into europe and make mistakes and um don't really appreciate the culture and the history of a lot of clubs and so um yeah that's uh, a little bit kind of a brief background of what i do and i'm very knowledgeable obviously on football on both sides of the atlantic and uh -hmm. and yeah happy to happy to talk
0: further about that perfect perfect so just to go straight into the, uh, so the juicy part of everything. So obviously with the world, we can't really have a podcast at this point in time without talking about the coronavirus, can we? So i want to ask you on a personal level, how has the coronavirus really affected you? Like, so this, like, how has it treated you so far?
1: Yeah. I mean, um, you know, we've been very diligent here in California. The, uh, the lockdown happened very early, so we haven't had that many cases specifically in Northern California. And so luckily we've been kind of spared the brunt where other places in, in the U S for example, have been hit pretty hard. So we've done okay. Um, lots of, you know, time at home, lots of, you know, socially distanced walks with the dog to the park. Um, mm. so I can't really complain too much, obviously from a footballing perspective it's been very disruptive for all of our projects particularly our club in Denmark but on a personal level it's really um it's been okay all things considering
0: mm, mm. That's, a, that's interesting interesting because uh, obviously like in the UK and uh, all around like everybody's trying to release that like l- reduce the lockdowns and everything because the economy is suffering massively and all of that but I don't want to get too much into politics and economics and all of that on here but Jordan, I also wanted to ask you, now that that's being said, so obviously it's affected um, your, restricted your movements and has made you stay at home a lot more often. I'm guessing that has also prevented you from um, working internationally as well, because I'm guessing the fact that you have clubs across, I mean, across the Atlantic, you have clubs, you have a club in Denmark, you have ties to a club in England, and you also have ties to a club in Ireland. I'm guessing that has really um, affected, like, how you can move around and get stuff done. So, I wanted to ask you, how has the coronavirus affected, like, the in, like, how has it affected your relationship with these different clubs?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's been very challenging. Um, I had a trip scheduled to Europe, uh, specifically to Denmark, at the beginning of March that I had to cancel, and obviously I haven't gone over since. I mean, luckily, um, you know, particularly our club in Denmark, we have a, a director, an American director, who's been in Denmark the whole time, so I'm in obviously in close consultation with him, but you know, the borders are still closed in many EU countries. Um, I don't know if they'll be opened up to Americans anytime soon, um, beyond essential mm. personnel. So it's definitely taken an adjustment. You know, um, I was scheduled to speak at a couple conferences. We were looking at a couple different projects in terms of other opportunities with other football clubs that obviously all that kind of stuff's now on hold. So, um, you know, from that perspective, it's been, it's been frustrating. Um, you know, more of the focus has been on, you know, how do, how does our business or how does our clubs, different clubs and particularly Denmark, um, you know, how are they affected by the coronavirus? You know, I think bigger football clubs, as challenging as this is, can sustain the losses to having no fans at the games and game day revenue and mm-hmm. sponsorship and, and those kind of revenue streams. But for smaller clubs, for instance, for us in, in Denmark with Helsinger, um, it can be very challenging um, not playing games with fans and, you know, just being a smaller club, you know, we had budgeted selling probably one or two players next season. And I think that might not become realistic anymore. So, you know, it's very, it's very difficult. And I think as you know, the summer progresses, and hopefully things improve, we'll start to see football return away from a, you know, financial side that makes, you know, things a little bit easier. But for now, it's really just about survival for a lot of clubs and finding models that can work in this climate, um, at
0: least for the club of, of that size. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting one. That's very interesting, you know, because you know uh, a lot of people in the Premier League have just been saying, oh, that the clubs really do need these uh, finances to be able to get stuff done, but very few leagues can actually say both are billion pound industries like the Premier League or the bigger leagues that can afford to stay short for such a long period of time, and most people don't actually consider the other clubs that are around, like in different countries. Well, yeah, that's actually very interesting. That's very, very interesting. So I wanted to ask you, um, Jordan, I want to just take it, just go, not necessarily trip down memory lane, but I'm just kind of curious, why did you start investing in like football clubs? And I uh, think, why did you start investing in football clubs?
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, I had played football growing up, not to a professional level, but to a semi-professional level. And I think I first got into it here in the US because, you know, it's still very much, A underappreciated sport from a professional level, you know, we we can spend a whole podcast talking about how soccer is in the United States and how it's growing and so many kids play the Mm. game. But, you know, from a club ownership or a club executive level, it's still very much uh, behind all the other major sports in this country. And I felt there was um, there were opportunities, especially with, you know, the U.S. and other North American countries hosting the World Cup in 2026. And so I felt it was it was a good time to kind of get into the sport. And I wasn't sure exactly what that looked like. Did I want to invest in a club? Did I want to go run a club? Where did I want to go? And ultimately, after a couple of years, I decided that um, you know, European football kind of suited my interests a little bit better because, you know, coming from an entrepreneurial background, it felt in Europe. It was just much more interesting. Right. We, we don't have promotional relegation in the United States. There's not a robust domestic player transfer market. Um, there's just, it's a much more stable business model like other sports in the U S which is great for the American model. But from my perspective, I thought it could be really exciting and interesting to go buy a smaller club and get a promoted up or to go find a really unique model. Like we have in Ireland where, you know, you want to do really well in European competition or you go find a club Mm. and you're really savvy about player recruitment. So it just felt like from a variety of angles that, um, the European football model suited me better. And, you know, I was lucky enough to have opportunities and be well connected enough to know the right people to get involved with some projects and have the opportunity to invest. And, um, you know, the nice thing right now with what we're doing at FC Helsinger is I was able to invest and put the project together, but also, you know, manage the club as the chairman and be the executive. And so I think it's, um, you know, for me, it's exciting because I do I do see a disconnect in some clubs between ownership and then the actual management of the club and for me at a smaller mm, club yeah. I'm, able, I'm able to be both and be very active um and I think my hope down the future whether you know it's Fs growing FC Helsing- helsinger to be a bigger club or doing something bigger is having those similar opportunities to kind of take my entrepreneurial background um from both the sport playing the sport and being in the business side of the sport and really kind of try to modernize the game I just posted an article the other day on LinkedIn about how um, the coronavirus might force football clubs to bring in more kind of savvy executives from that don't have football backgrounds. You see a lot of clubs that have, you know, the chairman or the director or even the sporting directors who've been at the clubs for 10 or 15 or 20 years. And I'm a relatively young guy myself. And I felt like it was, it's time, you know, certainly it's not going to happen overnight, but it's time for kind of a more innovation and more um, sophistication uh, with the way we look at the sport and that obviously isn't for every club there are plenty of clubs that are well run and do a good job and you know certainly chelsea is one of them but there are plenty of clubs that aren't and i felt like there's lots of opportunities in the sport
0: mm. Mm. That's very interesting. I want to just pick up on the last thing you said. You said not like not a lot of clubs are actually well run, and that's very evident. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to say any specific clubs, but some definitely spring to mind in the UK. Some near Liverpool, but I shall not be uh, specifying <laughs> what clubs <laughs> those are. But um, I just wanted to ask you because um, one of our one of our listeners was asking Ross John is asking what are your key insights regarding your experiences as an executive of a professional football club.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of it comes down to you have to create a delicate balance. And this is kind of my general overall philosophy when it comes to football. And I think sometimes football clubs are run too much like a business. It's just it's just numbers. It's, you know, uh, a hedge fund going in the hedge fund, for instance, that owns AC Milan or an investment groups that's so financially focused that they they kind of don't understand that at the end of the day, this is a football club and there's fans and supporters. And this is the lifeblood to many communities. And on the other hand, I think there's a lot of football clubs that are run just like a community organization, even some big clubs that basically spend money like it's candy and don't have any financial discipline whatsoever. And so I mm-hmm. think for me, it's how do you find that balance, right? Like, how do you find that balance between understanding that this is a, a very um, – there has to be a financial component to this. No one's going to put money into a football club if there isn't, but it also clearly, it's not a nuts and bolts business. It's a different kind of business that has a tangible benefit to both you as the investor and your supporters and your employees and your fans and your players. So how do you craft that balance? And I think that to me in this specific sport is the most important thing you can do is find a way that you can create a sustainable business. And, you know, in the UK, for instance, right, how do you how do you go into the championship or League One or League Two, for instance, and create a sustainable business when, you know, every team is losing money and every team is spending too much money mm-hmm. and everyone's aiming to get to the Premier League? And, you know, that's just not a sustainable model, right? And I think the coronavirus is making it more apparent it to a lot of those clubs. It's making it even worse and making it more apparent to those clubs that they can't just spend money like that and can't be they, there. has to be a financial discipline to to the situation, especially when, you know, obviously there's no salary cap and there's no constraints. You have owners that just spend money and yeah. spend money and eventually they decide, Hey, I don't want to spend money anymore. And the club goes bankrupt or it gets sold. So I think the, the whole landscape is just, it's very inefficient. It's very kind of this wild west of people doing whatever they want at whatever scales they want. And sometimes it works. And sometimes you have ownership that has enough money to do whatever they want, but a lot of times it doesn't. And you see Bolton and you see you know, the mess now at Charlton, for instance. And like, that's just, it's just yeah. frustrating to see. Cause if you had good, discipline ownership that understood what they were getting themselves into, I think you could avoid those situations. And so obviously this is a bigger conversation, but one of my philosophical reasons I'm into this sport and investing in management is because I want to try to avoid those situations. I hate hearing the horror stories of, in my case, American groups, right? There was an American group that went into Aston Villa and lost a lot of money, Derby County, like there's been a lot of American groups, for instance, that have done that over the years, and that's you know that's
0: frustrating to see because it's definitely avoidable. Mm. And with what you've just said, obviously, not a lot of clubs can actually afford to spend money during this period. Because I mean, even bigger clubs. Because I mean, I know quite a few people that tell give me information about like transfers and stuff. And I'm fortunate to be in a position like that, and I'm pretty confident you'd have loads. i mean, more, way more than I do. But I just want to ask you. So, with that being said. Um, D- D- David is asking you, he's, so he's asking, how do you balance long-term objectives with short-term opportunities, such as like the upcoming transfer window?
1: Yeah, I think it depends on what your your philosophy is as a club and an ownership group. If you are well, very well capitalized, right, let's just say Chelsea, for example, right, clearly you have an owner that's extremely wealthy, that's committed to the club, presumably for the long term, then you can use the coronavirus as an opportunity to... You know, go to smaller clubs that are struggling financially and, and bring in talent, strengthen your academy, um, you know, mm. invest in infrastructure projects that make sense. Now, I think most clubs, I would say more often than not during this coronavirus are really going to be struggling. It's going to be a buyer's market when it comes to buying players. So I think if you are well capitalized in the long run and you have a good long term business strategy, you know, not to say the coronavirus is a good thing because it's not, but you can use it yeah. to your advantage while other clubs really struggle. And so I do think that's you you do have to kind of balance that. But if you take the coronavirus out of the picture, I think it's like any other project or business. is like you want to put together a short-term, medium-term, and long-term strategy and stick to it. And specifically in football, when there's a lot of focus on selling players, right? When there's a lot of focus on getting promoted. These things can take years, right? Bringing players through your academy. You know, we clubs invest millions of dollars into academies, and you have investment groups that don't understand that, guess what? You're not going to see the return on those players on your first team or the return to sell those players for three or five or seven years, right? And so I think having a long-term strategy in football is really, really vital to success and having the patience and having the know-how to say, look, we might be in the red, we might be losing money for the next three to five years, but our long-term strategy has us getting out the other side. Now, obviously the coronavirus complicates that situation, but I think as long as you have good, strong ownership with, that's well capitalized with a, with a vision for the long run, you'll, you know, these clubs will be, most of the clubs will be okay. It's the smaller clubs that are kind of living hand to mouth. It's like I said, not to pick on league one and league two and the championship, but I think a lot of these clubs are, Mm -hmm. they're gunning to get for, for they're gunning for short-term success. We have to get promoted this year or else we're going to run out of money or we have to sell these two players. Well, guess what? The players, you know, sales market, regardless of what happens, is going to be heavily, uh, reduced right those those sale prices might be 50 percent less because of the coronavirus so all of a sudden you have giant holes in your budget and if you haven't committed to the long term you're going to be in trouble financially so i think it just comes down to the overall philosophy of 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 management ownership of these clubs mm. Mm.
0: that's very that's very important that's very interesting because a lot of people because i'm guessing you know marina Grandeskaya, the person who manages she basically like i'm getting like for anyone that's listening that's not a joseph and she Manages the um, she manages Chelsea's transfers and manages the club, especially since Roman Abramovich can't actually get into the country and do any official management. But I wanted to ask you, Jordan, because a lot of people feel like she's very um difficult to work with and sometimes she takes a lot of time to get transfers done. And they believe that because she's not very football oriented, she's not the best, she's not placed in the best position to get transfers and stuff like that done. Do you agree with those people? Or do you think that they need to look at this from a different perspective?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I'm not obviously super familiar with her specifically. But what I would say is, Mm. you know, it is a balance, right? You can't just have um, a sporting director and give him the keys to the car and say, go sign whoever you want. Here's an unlimited checkbook, right? Especially in light of the coronavirus. So do you think you have to have this balance between... You know, what are our financial objectives and who in our organization is making sure that we're making smart financial decisions versus what is our scouting and data and analytical infrastructure telling us in terms of identifying player targets? Now, you know, presumably chart Chelsea's a little bit more methodical and a little bit, you know, yeah. uh, slower in terms of how they identify talent and what their model is. And, you know is that a disadvantage when you have clubs with incredible amounts of money, PSG and man city. And when those are the clubs you're competing with for players? Absolutely. But, um, you know, I think it's just, it's striking that balance. And I, again, I can't speak to Chelsea specifically. Um, Mm. I don't think there's one, one necessarily right way to say this is the right person for recruitment. This is the right bio for recruitment. I think some clubs, you know, they have a fantastic manager who has the connections with agents and with clubs and with scouting and yeah. that works for them. Some clubs are heavily data focused. That works for them as well. Some clubs are more business focused. That works for them as well. So, you know, I think it's just about being sophisticated and having a, a model that works. Again, I can't speak to if it works or it doesn't work at Chelsea, but, um, yeah. you know, I think there are a lot of factors. I'm sure we'll talk, let's say, about Pulisic and his commercial impact Right? I'm sure when yeah. the discussions were being made about signing Pulisic, it was like, okay, clearly, There's a footballing component to this, which is a large component, but there's also an off the field component, too, which is equally as important probably to the people at Chelsea. So there's a lot of variables I think fans don't necessarily consider when it comes to these transfers and the recruitment of players.
0: Mm, mm. That's very good. That's very good insight to all of this, because like I like um, when it comes from people like myself who aren't. Anywhere as um, informed as you are on topics like this. People just throw it on like the boss. But I'm finally I'm glad that someone of your stature is saying something along these lines. Now, before we actually move on to your um to the different clubs that you're a part of, we have one more question with regards to like uh investing and ownership, and that comes from Jonathan, one of the listeners of the podcast. He's asking what is the most challenging thing at being about being a football club owner slash investor?
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's funny. I've talked about this a little bit. It's not the fun part. The fun part about being an owner or an investor is going to the games and, you know, Mm. feeling a sense of pride in the players you've recruited and the staff and the the community and how excited that gets. Um, You know, for instance, we, you know, Helsinger, our club in Denmark had struggled over the last couple of years and we had one game before our winter break where the club won and, we had about 500 supporters at the game, which is pretty good for us. It was a road match and they were chanting and they were hugging the, fan, the fans and someone came up to me and said we had they hadn't seen that kind of excitement in the fan base and at the club in several years. And so that was kind of really right. satisfying to see that, you know, to answer your question, the, the most difficult part, frankly, is really this the off the field part, the the. The the nuts and bolts of running a business for us in a foreign country, right? When we're dealing with the federations or labor laws or, you know, just dealing with when we get fined from a from the federation for our fans having flares at the games or Mm -hmm. all the kind of things behind the scenes that aren't sexy that just go into running a business. And how do we (laughs) make this a sustainable project? That's the part that easily is the most challenging part. The stuff on the field is relatively easy. You put all the puzzle pieces in place. And if you do a good job, you know, more oftentimes than not, it works. It's the off the field stuff. And frankly, you know, when we bought Helsinger, for instance, the culture at the club was really poor. The club had just gotten relegated and yet players and staff didn't want to be there. And so for us at that time, one of our biggest challenges was just building a new culture and a culture of positivity where people wanted to be there and they believed in the long-term vision of the club. And once that happened, it, it, it got very positive. But I think at a lot of clubs, um, there's just a lot of things that go into putting it together behind the scenes, whether that's taking care of the players or making sure your staff is taken care of or all those kind of little things. I think those are the most
0: challenging aspect of running a football club. Mm, mm. Nice one. Very nice one. So now, with all that being said, like um, we said at the start of the podcast, they're actually involved with three football clubs. I'm going to ask you a little bit about each one, different types of questions. But we'll start off um, back home in England. We'll be talking about Swansea first. So, I mean, Swansea are a really exciting squad at the moment. I think they're like currently 11th in the league standings. Yeah. But yeah. I wanted to ask you, so, um, Tammy Abraham. Was actually uh, Swansea, and Chelsea currently do have Gallagher at. Uh, I had Gallagher at um, Swansea as well. What are your thoughts on these two players? And did you ever get to watch them? On like, what were your what were just what were your overall thoughts on the two of them? Yeah, I haven't been over to a
1: Swansea game in about a year. Um, but when Tammy was there, mm. I went to a bunch of games. This must have been two years ago. And I mean, he scored a lot of goals. Quality player um, was really, I think, a big piece of the club when it was in the Premier league haven't get i haven't got to see gallagher that much i've heard he's done very well he you know he came over i believe in the winter window and then obviously everything got put on hold so you know the cool thing about Swansea is it's a club that's always had a really strong identity um it's always brought in some good quality attacking footballers um you know obviously being in the championship is tough there's just a lot of clubs you know spending a lot of money and gunning for the Premier league and so i think um there's been definitely flashes of exciting football this year i think the the coronavirus break was a little bit tough um the hope was the club would kind of sneak into the top six and into the playoff and i'm not sure how that's going to happen now with the coronavirus change but you know it's it's a club that has an identity and i think um it's it's a really interesting club to be a part of a very passionate fan base and you know a really good academy as we've seen some some of the young academy players move on to bigger clubs so it's been an exciting club to be a part of obviously um the hope is to get back to the Premier League soon, but you know, even in the Championship,
0: it's a it's a good it's a good club to be a part of. Mm, mm. Fine enough, fair enough. So, the main, main, main bit I've been wanting to get to from the very beginning. So, we're going to be talking about Helsingborg. So, I wanted to ask you, for starters, why did you choose them? Why them? What made you choose them? Yeah. Well, we, you know, the first discussion was
1: where, you know, which league and which country And Denmark was very attractive for a lot of reasons for us, you know, in terms of everyone spoke English, had a history, um, a track record of, of uh, players moving on from Denmark to bigger leagues, Germany and Holland and Belgium and the UK. Um, There's a lot of clubs that focus really on youth development. Um, And, you know, I think in general clubs for the most part, not always the case, but for the most part are well run in Denmark. It's, you know, you know, a progressive country and so once we decided on Denmark um, looked at a couple different clubs different sizes um, decided that Helsinger was the right spot it's you know about a 40-minute train ride from Copenhagen so it was important that we would be close to Copenhagen both for player recruitment and for visibility and commercial reasons um, had a new stadium opening you know we bought the club last year and the stadium opened over last summer so it had a new stadium coming had pretty good Academy infrastructure um, had good history. The club had been at the highest levels of uh, Danish football you know, as of a year or two ago. So it kind of checked a lot of boxes mm. for us. It was a good kind of open canvas for us to come in and potentially you know, modernize the club and bring in some good young talent from abroad and get the club back up to the top levels in Scandinavia. Hopefully eventually sell some players and then prove that we can run uh, you know, a, a good size Scandinavian football club and then you know, hopefully move on to bigger and better things.
0: Mm, mm. That's, that's, That's actually really interesting because, and also like you said earlier on as well, you said a fan came up to you and was just like they haven't experienced anything like this before, like they haven't experienced this sort of culture at the club in such a long time. So I wanted to ask you, how did you feel about getting promoted?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, so for this season, we haven't we haven't got promoted yet. We're, got, we're on track to get promoted, but we're everything's on hold now with the coronavirus, although there is a chance the season yeah. will get canceled and then we'll get promoted. So you know, knock on wood, we're not quite there yet. But obviously, if that happens, um, it's going to be a huge accomplishment. I think at any level, getting promoted um, is kind of a really strong indicator of the hard work that you've put into the club, both on and off the field. And I think particularly with this club that had a struggled so much in many different ways um it's very satisfying to see how everything has changed positively for the organization and how that's being reflected in the on-field performance so you know again not there quite yet but i think it's just gonna be very satisfying hopefully um, in the near future when that day comes
0: Mm. Mm. that's a nice one so i don't know to ask you as well so for a lot of people that are listening to this, they will probably never own football clubs themselves, but themselves. But you said you run this on a day-to-day basis, correct?
1: Yes, I mean, we have a yeah. I have an American director who's there on the ground. I'm obviously not on the ground in Denmark yeah. every single yeah. day, yeah. but um, from a from an oversight perspective, from a management perspective,
0: I'm in charge of all the decision making at the club. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so how exactly does it feel? like have you is this something that you had always dreamed of doing as a young child and like if yes or no like how does it feel to actually run a football club day to day like what are the like basic things i just need to get done just out of curiosity um yeah i don't
1: think i had that was my dream to run a football club i think um it kind of just happened and it's you know it's obviously turned into something i'm very passionate about and i think um you know, like I said earlier, um, as exciting and as fun as it is, there's a lot of times it's not fun and it's paying bills and it's dealing with payroll taxes. And so I think a lot of the behind the scenes work on the day to day basis is not super exciting, but in the same way, like I described, you know, a potential promotion, it's very satisfying to go out there on a Friday or a Saturday or Sunday when it's match day, see kind of the fruits of your labor and then realize all that hard work you've put in, um, you know, kind of building to something. And then I think also, you know, from my perspective, you know, we have a sporting director and we have a good sporting staff, but you know, I still have global connections on, on my end. And so we were able to bring in a couple players from abroad, um, through connections that I had. And then it's satisfying to see the development of those players that I was able to bring in to the club and see them develop and see them hopefully get sold or hopefully make a huge impact on our first team. And so I think in many ways, um, You have being an owner of a club, you have very much like a sense of, um, you know, a strong emotional bond to a lot of the the management and the decision making in the club. And it, it makes it that much more satisfying. It's not that different necessarily from being a very passionate supporter of a club, but you just you really have the ability to enact change. And I think if you can come in with the right philosophy, that can that can be really positive. Obviously, being a supporter of a club. For your whole life and your family's life, it can be very frustrating, right? If decisions are not being made that you agree with, or yeah. owner, you know, all those kind of things. And so, I, I, I think it's from an ownership perspective, you, you do have an ability to do things that can make a real positive impact on communities.
0: Mm. Mm. Fair Enough. Fair enough. Now, another thing that I found very, very interesting about Housing is the youth setup that you actually do have going because. Um, at Chelsea at the moment, while well, having obviously Chelsea are brought in Frank Lampard and they're trying to deploy use, like start using the youth players more often. And I believe we had a guest on a few um a few weeks back and he specifically said that we be one of the objectives of the club would possibly to actually build the spine out of these youth players and then from that point onward well, then they add in more players that they want. So what was your reason what's the reason behind goals you youth drive at moment because your average age of the squad is actually not that high compared to other squads. So why, why, yeah. why, is that?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's early. We've only owned the club for one year and I think we're going to have to transition from a club that is focused on getting promoted. So we're going to be a little bit, we have been older, a little bit more experienced to a younger club, you know, certainly a, a selling forward club. And again, pending the coronavirus, um, you know, the Academy in Helsinger is pretty good. It's, um, it's, You know, it's produced some pretty good talent. Um, I think before we bought the club, one of the goalkeepers is actually at Burnley now. I think I don't know if he's on the first team or on the under 23s. And so, you know, Denmark Mm. produces a very good technical player. And I think there's a lot of good talent there, you know, for a club of our size and who we are. We have to be producing players through our academy. Um, you know, the challenge with us, the challenge with us is the Academy is relatively young. It's I think only three or two or three years old. And so it's going to take a lot more time for it to mature to the point where we're constantly producing more first team players and players that can get sold. So that's definitely a challenge. You know, obviously bigger clubs like that can buy players. That's a different calculus. I do think you have to find a balance right between bringing players through your own system and identifying your own talent versus buying players. I think just straight buying players can be very challenging financially. Uh, but for us, mm. you know, we understand who we are as a club and, you know, we're not going to develop a player that's going to get sold, sold to Barcelona, but we could develop a player that gets sold to the biggest clubs in Denmark, FC Copenhagen. And then that player could move on yeah. to a team in the EPL. Right. I think that's, Understanding where we are in the food chain is important because, you know, at some point in the future, probably when we're doing this at a bigger club, then we understand, OK, we can do this at a club in the the bottom club in the Premier League and then sell a player to a bigger club like a Chelsea. And just understanding the food chain and how the structure works, I think, is important.
0: Mm. Mm. So just let's say, let's just take, look five years into the future. What exactly are your plans for Elzingo five years from now?
1: Well, I mean, I think the goal is, um, you know, the short-term goal is to stabilize the club after relegation. The next goal is to continue to develop through some young players, both through our academy and bringing in good young foreign talent. Um, you know, we'd like to get promoted, obviously, back up to the Danish Superliga and then just really mm-hmm. be a stable, stable, well-run club towards the top of, you know, the leagues in Scandinavia. And then, you know, beyond that, we'll see where it goes. But I think... You know, we're still so early. It still really is very, and especially with the coronavirus, which I think is going to kind of extend our timelines out. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think the focus is just on stability at this point, and we're, we're getting to the point where we feel really good about that with the promotion.
0: Mm, mm. That's nice, yeah. So before we get on to um, some other things and a specific American player at Chelsea, I wanted to ask you a few more little questions. I wanted to ask you, if you were to describe the type of football that Helsingort did play, how would you describe it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we we were one of the, not few isn't the right word, but one of the uh, clubs that has artificial turf um, in Denmark, Uh, there are a handful that also do. And so I think we've put together a squad that um, is very well suited to that surface. So very fast, very technical um squad and i think comparatively a lot of the clubs you'll see in scandinavia and in denmark are big and strong and physical and um kind of play in a little bit of a way like the championship in the uk and you know we've we've mm. kind of decided to tailor a team that's a little bit more focused around our pitch and and a little bit more exciting especially trying to be a selling club or obviously you know, more attack oriented goal scoring type players are obviously going to command higher resale value. So we've tried to craft that. Um, obviously, we have to balance that that philosophy with winning games and creating a good culture around the club. But I think, um, you know, we've we've tried to model ourselves. FC Northland is a big club in Denmark and is yeah, probably the know, best yeah. the best club in terms of youth development in the country. And they're kind of right down the road from us and they have an artificial pitch as well so we've kind of tried to model ourselves after them and they play a very attack oriented um style with a lot of
0: young talent um on their roster mm. Mm. okay okay fair enough that's very interesting so before we hop on before, before we leave and help single finally i just wanted to ask you do you have any obviously i don't want to make you choose having any, pick any favorites or anything but are there any players at the moment at Helsingor that are really catching your eye? And why? Um,
1: you know, I think it's a mix. Um, we have a goalkeeper who's definitely a little bit on the older side. Um, but he was at Manchester City in the early two thousands, and he's kind of towards the end of our career, but he's a really good mentor for some of our younger players. And you know, we mm-hmm. you know Kevin, um, I don't even know how to pronounce his name because it's in Danish, but um uh, mm. <laughs> He, he's a really, you know, has been at some big clubs before, and, you know, obviously in the U.K. before. Um, we have a couple of young youth national team players, two of them who are from New Zealand, who are really talented. You know, they, they're 18 and 19, and they still, I think, need some time to develop through our first team over the next couple of years. So those two players are exciting. And beyond that, you know, we have a, hand, a couple Danish players who have gone through the youth national team setup. But, um, you know, it's it's a little early, I think, for us to really identify any specific talents that we're really that you know excited about but i think across the board yeah we have a very solid roster a good mix of experienced players and young players and you know i think that's something we're excited about Mm. Mm.
0: okay that's right that's interesting okay good to know good to know so i'm going to be moving on to sort of like premier league related questions now but um I'm going to be asking one specifically about a Chelsea player that I'm sure you're extremely familiar with, Christian Pulisic. So, what would you say are the financial ben? Do you think there are any financial benefits of Chelsea actually signing Pulisic at the time? Because when we signed him, a lot of people said he was constantly getting injured and he wasn't really worth it. He's not as good as he was, as they claimed he was. But I was just like, whenever I watched him play for America, he was always extremely electric and very good on the ball. And I felt like... Chelsea signing a player of that caliber, especially from a country that isn't um, too inclined into watching football, would be very, very big for us and very, very big for the US uh, national team as well. So, what do you think of the Pulisic transfer? What do you think of Pulisic as a player? Do you watch him at all? Or, yeah, I mean, I don't,
1: well, you know, I don't watch every single game he plays, but certainly it's a reason for any American to turn on Chelsea in the on a weekend morning to watch the games. I think. You know, obviously, he brings a lot to the table from a footballing perspective. And I think after a little bit of a rough start there, he's shown the quality that he has. He's still a young player. I don't know. Is he 21, 22, 23? He's very young still. Yeah. Um, incredibly talented player. And I think he's the type of player that uh, the U.S. has just not produced in any sort of quantity um, with that kind of electricity. Um, from a commercial perspective, uh, you know, I'm sure... So you know Chelsea could speak more to exactly what the commercial benefit is to sign him, but I think in the long term it creates a lot of interest here in the U.S. in that club because he's clearly, as of right now, the most well-known uh, American soccer player. Period. Let alone in the U.S. or in Europe, and so that that means that people that either. Um, don't necessarily care about Chelsea or don't necessarily care about the sport or waking up on the mor- you know in the morning on a weekend and watching a Chelsea game. and I think that that is pretty big uh, from a commercial aspect. I don't know how you would quantify that if there are you know sponsors in the US who are more interested in Chelsea because of him, if that means more Americans are getting on a plane and going over and going to the games, not exactly sure how you, would com- you know, quantify the commercial benefit, but clearly there is a big benefit. Um, I had just to give you an example is I've had with the coronavirus, obviously everyone here is looking for content, live sports to watch on television and everyone's excited that the Bundesliga has come back and had a couple people, including family members, say, hey, um, which which teams in the Bundesliga are the Americans on? Because those are the teams I want to watch. Right. And so Mm -hmm. I think the same the same kind of philosophy applies to Chelsea, especially with someone like Pulisic, who has much more name recognition than any of the Americans who are playing in Germany is there's a lot of people that, especially if they don't have a team, they're like, okay, well, I'll pick Chelsea because it has Pulisic, right? And I think that's pretty big um, for the growth. And so, you know, I I can't speak to was it a good, um, was the the purchase purchase price price inflated? Was it a good move for Chelsea? I think he's starting to prove that it was a good move. But in the long term, I think it will, just my two cents, I think it was a smart move
0: for Chelsea in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. Good points, mate, good points, really like that, I really like that. And like you said, a lot of people are asking about um, American players, um, American players and what if they, like, the different teams that they play for in the Bundesliga, so that actually brings me back to Helsingor because I actually did forget to ask that. So do you plan on, obviously because so you're, you're from America and you now own a club in Denmark, so do you plan on bringing American players over to Denmark to develop and to, like, just to uh, put some more light on the Danish league?
1: Yeah, I mean, we we did bring over a couple
0: Americans last summer. We
1: have one American on the roster currently, and that's certainly been a focus of us from the beginning. You know, Now the challenge becomes is that the borders are closed and that it's very going to be very challenging for the foreseeable future to bring over Americans, uh, at least for the summer, at least probably in the next six to 12 months. But you know, with our connections in the U.S., um, the, the growing burgeoning football Culture and market here in the U.S. I think it's always going to be a, a very big piece of what we do in helsinger is to identify top American talent to bring to Denmark.
0: So. Mm. Okay, fair enough. So that's really me done in terms of speaking about players and like specific football clubs and all that. So I'm going to be coming back to you now. I'm sort of looking at more of like your future plans and stuff like that now. So I'm really curious. You've mentioned. You, spe- you mentioned that um, you understood where you were in the food chain with Helsing at the moment, and you also mentioned possibility of getting maybe a smaller Premier League club, but you don't know how the future can afford m- well One day I could just see that you've bought one of the biggest clubs in England. Nothing is impossible, is it? So do you actually plan on coming to England anytime soon in a major ownership capacity?
1: Uh, I would probably say it's unlikely. Um, I think England is while well, it's attractive certainly for an American with the cultural similarities, and you know, you know, for us, you know, it's the most visible league. Even the championship is is more visible than a lot of European leagues here in the U.S. I think the challenge with the leagues in Europe um, is is it's just very competitive. There's a lot of groups spending a lot of money trying to gun for the Premier League. There's a lot of um, you know the price points are very high, so it's a, it's a challenging spot to try to create. A model that makes sense. But, you know, you never say never. I think there's definitely some interesting clubs. I mean, you see potentially the the new group coming in at Newcastle that could create something interesting. There's a couple groups that have tried different things and failed at Sunderland. So I think there's definitely Mm -hmm. opportunities there. Um, You know, I think for me, it would probably be a lot more attractive if the coronavirus um, made institutional changes, certainly to the lower divisions where there were financial models that made sense where you could go into League One or League Two and buy a club and not absolutely hemorrhage money. You know, I, I have no idea if they're going to put financial constraints in place that make that possible. But I think if that could be the case, it would be much more attractive. And then you could go in and find clubs like Bolton that have incredibly passionate supporters and try to find a model mm-hmm. that makes sense because I just right now don't see it. So to answer your question, probably not anytime soon.
0: Mm-hmm. but it's something you definitely you would consider the opportunity did come up
1: yeah i mean look i i'm an ambitious guy i'd like to be a part of bigger projects certainly in european and global football whether that's as an executive or as an investor and if that brings me to the uk down the road i'm it's certainly something i would seriously consider you know we've we've looked at projects in france and spain and italy and some of these other places and they obviously all present different challenges and different benefits but um You know, I think at the end of the day, it's probably no different than being a player. Is you want to test yourself at the highest levels and finding a way on the ownership level to, you know, be in a club that's, you know, in the Champions League or be involved in the club that's making big European transfers. I think that would always be really
0: exciting. Okay. Okay. That's very interesting. So, with all that being said, to close out on the Premier League, is there any teams in the Premier League that you do, like, let's say, you're sat at home, Saturday morning when you wake up, uh, Puts on the television and you're just like, let's watch some football today. And let's say how and Go isn't playing or any of the teams that you're involved in aren't playing and the Premier League is on. Are there any teams you watch in particular or you just watch the bigger derbies or there's your one little team that you just like to watch or something like that? I would say, uh,
1: you know, I think Liverpool is always attractive to, to watch with the way they play with Klopp. Um, you know, I, I don't, I like Burnley. I don't like, I don't think they play attractive football, but I like what they do in terms of philosophically and the way they, they conduct their business. I think it's really savvy and that they've created a model that makes a lot of sense. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would say it's mostly usually the bigger matchups. The other team that is usually on my radar is not in the Premier League is Brentford in the Championship. I really like what they do. Mm, yeah, I, um, I know their I know their owner a little bit, and he's a really savvy guy. And I think um, they've very been very data and analytical focused, and they've always um, I know I think they're I don't know what, fourth, fifth, sixth place this year. And you know they're they're one of the lowest budgets in the championship, so they're always a team that I I watch closely. They have connections to Denmark, so yeah. I mean, I would say Chelsea as well with Pulisic. I'm always interested in watching. Um, so it definitely depends.
0: Mm. Mm. Okay, okay, perfect. So that's me done with football completely. So I was going to backtrack a little bit. I like you know initially we spoke about. Um, this spoke about how you got interested in like investing in certain football clubs so now I want to ask you what got you interested in investing like overall like has this been something you've always wanted to do or like just what's the story and how long have you been into investing into different um, ventures and stuff like that
1: well I think um, you know I've, I've always worked for myself uh I, you know I've had my own companies for uh, probably my since college since my whole life and so I think that's you know, from an investment standpoint, that's the interesting thing is you can kind of control your business and your project and make the decisions that you see fit and institute, you know, what you want to do. And so, you know, I think for the longest time that's how I had, had you know, conducted myself, you know, from a in my other life and then decided that I would like that to translate into sports. And that doesn't mean I won't ever go work for another owner and go run a club or, or whatnot. But um, I was just always very much a self starter and that was always very attractive to me. So I think you know. I certainly have, as we mentioned, passive investments where I invest in things for different reasons and don't have any involvement necessarily. But a lot of my investments are not passive because I think that's an, it's important to, to really have a hands-on approach if you're going to get involved with something.
0: Mm, mm. So apart from that like football clubs at the moment, the three we've mentioned, are there any other investments you have at the moment?
1: Uh, outside of football, um, I have an investment in a winery in Mendoza in Argentina. Uh, we make Malbec. Yes. Um it's, it's not that dissimilar than owning a football club. Uh, we, you know we go down there once <laughs> or twice a year with with my wife and you know we uh, we make wine as part of a bigger group with friends and family and so that's that's kind of exciting it gives me an excuse to travel. Um, you know beyond that no it's just mostly football focused.
0: Mm, okay, okay so what would you actually give to uh, younger people and like people who are aspiring to do the stuff that you do because i mean i don't really partake in investing i like um because i mean i'm trying to run a few companies myself like marketing stuff i also do like i'm involved in like cryptocurrency and trade stock trading and stuff like that so what sort of advice would you give to someone who's uh aspiring to do things like yourself
1: Well, I mean, to get involved in investing in general, you obviously have to have a risk capacity to be okay that, you know, many investments fail or they might not work out the way you like them. Or you certainly have to have a capacity to do that. I think more likely what I actually get asked more often than not is like, I want to get into sports or I want to get into football. How do I do that? And I think um, because obviously because my approach in terms of my investing approach is just it's very different and unique and it doesn't isn't necessarily realistic for most people. So. I think my advice in general in anything is, you know, network, connect with the right people, you know, volunteer your time, intern, start small, get involved with clubs, you know, you know, put uh, make a good imprint on on your clubs and then impress people like myself who are in positions of, of management that, in, you know, that can help you advance your career. And so, um, you know, from an entrepreneurial perspective, it's like if you, have ideas and, you know, you think they're viable, it's like, give it a shot. I mean, but realizing that most businesses do fail, um, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's just the way the world works. And so I think it just, it just depends on what the goals and visions are for younger people. But like at the end of the day, it comes down to, you know, being a self-starter, being really hardworking, being a people person in terms of connecting with the right people. Um, and so I think if you check those boxes, you're probably going to have
0: success. Mm. Mm. interesting thanks for the advice thanks for the advice so i was mm-hmm. going to ask you so now that we're just like winding down now things are going to end very soon i going to ask you so obviously you get a lot of, like involved in a lot of football and that's not too popular up in the states so do you watch any other sports are there any other teams that you follow like passionately
1: uh, yeah, I mean, I watch most other sports here in the U.S. Uh, I'm a big fan of basketball, NBA, um, NFL. Mm, what American team? Football, I watch that. Uh, for the NBA, my team is the Sacramento Kings. And in the NFL, the local team here is the San Francisco 49ers. Um, so, yeah, I try to stay involved. Obviously, I, I keep involved in American soccer, too, here, even though, relatively speaking, it's not quite pop- that popular yet. And, you know, there's just so many different um avenues here whether it's hockey or college athletics and there's there's just so many different uh things it's only and and then from a footballing perspective you can get up on a weekend and you can watch football in about 15 or 20 different leagues so there's there's a lot of things going on there's only so much time in the day um but uh but yeah i would say uh basketball and american football would be my two uh two ones i i I watch the most after soccer
0: Mm, mm. interesting interesting that's very interesting you know very very interesting okay mm-hmm. so i just want to ask you like random so like basically this is like basically the last question of the day so when there's no virus when uh, football is not um, on and when you're just generally less busy what do you like to do to unwind like what do you do like to have fun like what are the things sort of things that you do to take your mind off football and taxes? And silly fans throwing things onto the stands that get you in trouble with the FEs and stuff like that. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, I, we, I have a dog here and, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, spend a lot of time with him and my wife and I spend a lot of time with my family. Luckily, we live in a very nice part of San Francisco. So we're walking, spend a lot of time at the beach and exercise. And so I think just time with the family, especially for me when the coronavirus isn't happening, I'm traveling a lot. I'm usually traveling about two weeks a month to Europe. So the time that I do have at home is really important to me and so it it gives me a good Mm. chance to unwind unwind a little bit and put some distance between me and some of the projects i'm working on Mm.
0: Mm. okay that's great that's great okay jordan thank you so much for hopping on to the sw6 daily podcast we really do appreciate it you're very very honest and direct with a lot of the stuff you've given us and i'm sure anyone that's actually listening to this has picked up so much more information. But before we hop off, is there anything else you'd like to add? Anything else you'd like to say? No, I don't think so. Uh,
1: I really enjoyed it. Like I said, I'm always happy to chat about this stuff. I think um, it's fun and exciting. And you know, um, I think you guys pushed it. But if anyone has any questions, or I'm always happy to ask, you can reach out to me on Twitter. It's Mr. Jordan Gardner. Uh, just send me a DM. I'm happy to to answer any questions.
0: Perfect. Perfect. So. Best believe, I shall be leaving all the uh, contact information down in the description below. Be leaving your Twitter at, I'll be leaving um, Helsingos Twitter down at the bottom and everything. So, once again, Jordan, thank you very much for hopping on the SW6 Daily Podcast. So, guys, like I said, back to back to back to back banners. We had a club owner on this time. Let's see what we bring on next time. But that's all from me, Dami, and I will catch you guys in the next episode. Okay. Bye-bye.